Recovery Reform is a podcast that provides educational content while addressing the stigma against drugs and the people who use them. Expertise meets lived experience as the hosts and their respective guests unpack the multifaceted cause that is recovery reform. Welcome back to another episode of Recovery Reform. I'm Taylor Nichols. I'm an addiction medicine and emergency medicine physician. And I'm here with my co-host, Macaulay Sexton. And we're going to be talking a little bit about his life and his views on his life and substance use and substance use disorders. So, Macaulay, welcome. Um, I'm going to jump right in with some sort of... Let's go. Just jump right into it. Yeah. So I I know you and I have talked before about sort of your family history and that your I know your mom has alcohol use disorder and I, I know you have some more extended family history with substance use and substance use disorders um and I just wanted to get into like how since we're both people with family histories um and I have my view on how that impacted me but I want to hear your view on how that impacted you your views on substance use and how you feel like that might have impacted your development of substance use disorder um and and sort of how you viewed that um going forward how how that impacted your views to get to where you are today where we are very much sort of aligned in this but i know i know we both had a journey to get there and and you had to do a lot of similar sort of unlearning um and i'd love to hear about how you how you got there yeah, no, that's a good question. And so, yeah, my mom now has been in recovery, you know, double digits. Um, I'm pretty sure she's at about like 15 years of, of abstinence from, from alcohol specifically. And uh, so I grew up in a very alternative culture with a lot of alcohol use disorder and a lot of just like recreational alcohol consumption, as well as like a lot of... Uh, cannabis use growing up like just a lot of stuff like that a lot of casual substance use you know i spent a lot of time you know in music venues and music festivals and gatherings of hippies and and things of that nature so basically as a kid it was just very normalized um alcohol was normalized but to be completely honest cannabis was probably a little bit more normalized than alcohol even um you know that was kind of the vibe but as far as like my experience with you know my my mom you know specifically it was like a mixed experience because you know she is where i get like my inspiration as like an entrepreneur because that was you know so strong and so apparent And then there was like this other side of like, you know, some like abusive behaviors and, you know, like erratic emotions and things of that nature. So like what it did is it kind of it made me hyper aware of people's energy. And that often happens with kids like in certain dynamics with their family or their guardians or whoever it may be, whoever they're around, you know. Um, And so basically that is something that I just saw as normal and I kind of managed and it made me like just hyper aware of people's emotions and stuff like that. Now, as it relates to like 
stigma and stuff back then. Like I was aware that there were some discrepancies going on. Like I could see that there was like a problem, so to speak, with with alcohol, you know. But the the thing is, it just again was so normal. And what it did is it made me judgmental towards alcohol, basically. So I was like more judgmental towards alcohol than anything else. Um, and I was kind of slightly judgmental towards cannabis as well, because I just was, it was so in my face and, and normal. Um, and I was just so exposed to it all the time. But what ended up happening basically is it, I kind of went into some of the more like problematic ways of thinking about just substance use or the consumption of alcohol in general, you know, and the thing is, I actually didn't even start quote unquote experimenting until way later. So like all my friends would be, you know, drinking alcohol or using cannabis or using whatever. And for me, I was like judgmental of that and uh, kind of hesitated to even engage with with those things. Then um, basically what ended up happening is through like challenging experiences, through even just being questioned, you know, like regular inquiry from my dad or my mom, like what's going on? Like, are you experimenting? That, that, that experience of, of having your, your parents ask you if you're experimenting, I think is kind of universal, you know what I mean? Um, and so even just in that, kind of out of like a place of spite, I was like, yeah, I don't know, maybe I... I just might do it, you know, just like with this like teenage spirit of being anti-authority. Um, so yeah, it just, it, it basically made it though to where like the first time, like let's say that I consumed cannabis or the first time that I drank alcohol, it just kind of took some enjoyment out of it that I felt like my peers were getting because I was like consciously thinking about how it could be a problem. And uh, it, yeah, it just made it to where I felt like compared to my friends and I can't, I wasn't in their head. So I can't tell you exactly how they felt and what they were thinking, but it seemed that I was experiencing something that my peers weren't and that I was like consciously thinking like, I don't think this is good. So it was kind of annoying to have that. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. That, that actually, that definitely resonates. Um, with me i i always had that sort of thought in the back of my mind um when you had those experiences i mean obviously um you, you can go into as much of your family history as you want and how yeah. how it impacted you um but where do you think you know if you're coming from a place where your use of those substances was like dampened um your enjoyment of it was dampened or your view of them was already a little bit negative then where do you feel like your use sort of turned a corner on that? Well, specifically, it's when I was hit by a car and given prescription opiates and uh, given prescription benzodiazepines. But it was just a continual compromise. Uh, I feel like I was indoctrinated into a culture that was centered around avoiding challenging emotions and experiences, which I think that everyone is ultimately indoctrinated into that. But those who have, you know, a compulsive use disorder, that's where it becomes kind of tricky. I think it's very normal and acceptable for people to have things that they use, chemicals, substances, drugs, whatever, that help them to cope with reality or to, you know, 
put a put a cap on a on a long day, so to speak. Right. You know what I mean? Like I I get that, um, but I think that part of it was just that, which is kind of accepting begrudgingly. Like like this was reality. This is what people do. This is how people navigate, and like that was really just influenced by culture. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't just the people in my life, but, you know, I had things like, you know, my grandma who, you know, compulsively consumed cannabis and it was like that normalized it. And, and, and luckily there were times in my life where that was really beneficial because I would lean on that and, and experience a lot of, a lot, a lot of harm reduction, but basically like it just shifted to where I was continually kind of compromising my overwhelming awareness about just the fact that I felt like reality was set up in a fucked up way and I didn't like the structure of things. Ultimately, it was also kind of looking at pros and cons and saying, okay, well, I'm so overstimulated by reality and culture and I'm sorry to use this term, but like the system, so to speak, I was really like heavy into looking at institutions and and the public school system and all these other things. I was very aware of that stuff as a kid. So it was like, how do I navigate this with these really strong emotions? I've always felt very heavily. I've, I've had, I've been in touch with, with my emotions. I also just briefly will say that I was born into this, like this kind of spiritual awareness, if you will. And I really like, if you know about me, I do not focus on spirituality when, when it comes to my advocacy at all. But I can tell you that as a kid, this is, this is what led to the shift in the substance use as well, was that I had like events at school to where like at, on one occasion, I basically was like writing like rap lyrics from like a Red Man and Method Man song. And I ended up getting in trouble for that and basically shamed uh, by, you know, the administrators. And they were basically alluding to the, this idea that my mom and dad were like stoners when in fact they weren't at all. Um, they didn't even consume cannabis. It was my grandma. So then it became like this whole thing. So the, the reason that's relevant is because there were these just there were these periodic events that showed me that reality was overstimulating and just not safe necessarily and kind of judgmental, you know. And so that's that's the issue is that that then gave me um, it compromised me at a level that I was that I was willing to do things that seemed not okay, basically. Um, and that's where a lot of people can see like, uh, their, their morals, if you will, I, it's, this is like substance use disorder is not a moral thing, but that is where that whole idea comes from that people are immoral. It's because in order to navigate, a lot of times you're compromising things that are really meaningful to you and that are like kind of coming from your conscience, if you will, you know, like that's what it, what it felt like. But, um, but yeah, the event that like shifted it was, really getting hit by the car on my bike and then having like a, a strong cosine of like, take, you can take these things and being in like a kind of like a bed rest situation because of my injury. And then that's where I discovered like combining different things. And that's where I discovered like smoking, like some super dank weed with the, the benzos and the, op the, the opiates. And I was like, Oh, like I feel like my emotions are being kind of numbed and 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 silenced, or you know the volumes turned down a little bit. So there's definitely there's just periodic events to where I would compromise. I would go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm gonna drink heavily tonight, or I'm gonna, you know. But uh, I can say with alcohol, just in in closing, uh, that I always was overwhelmingly mindful of my alcohol consumption and would never 
ever let myself consume it at a level that I saw some of my peers consume it, it would just, I would not do that. So I think it's important to acknowledge that coming from, you know, someone, you know, my mom with alcohol use disorder, I was able to moderate alcohol (laughs) at a level that was still, I'm sorry, like normal alcohol consumption can end up being very problematic and chaotic and, and you can have, you know, a lot of different wild events that happen just with a normal a normal person who's, who's who's drinking alcohol and not to perpetuate the whole normal person thing but the average person you know right. so i just like, like to, to mention that yes like average use i'm sure like average use is basically it qualifies as binge drinking in almost every single scenario when you look at like the science behind it and i'm not going to go i don't want to i don't want to go you know too deep into that but um but yeah so the the being hit by being hit by a car is what shifted it to where it was like I felt kind of like trapped at that point and not like oh trapped on substances but by circumstance now I have legitimate chronic pain and now I'm going to have to kind of navigate life with this you know and I imagine right those weren't substances that you initially viewed through this negative frame and then you felt that I was did. okay and they like helped moderate your you know sense of perception in a, maybe a similar way that other people in your family had sort of explored um that could have been problematic for them but i think your point is is interesting and and, and very much a valid one that like people use substances largely based around the the human need to moderate their perception of of reality and their experience of reality i mean the 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 act of existing as human in the world like is you know we 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 inherently have a desire to alter our perception um and you can go back and look at you know any civilization that we've discovered in history like back, back to like you know uh fossil records of of finding that they could, you know, they were like fermenting things to for alcohol, right? Like there yeah. is a natural human need and not that modern society has necessarily made it better, if anything, potentially made it worse and more harmful of our experience of reality. And then moderating that harm through substances, as you mentioned, like there are things that happen in life that are going to be traumatic. But when you set that up in the framework of a society that's not um that that like shames people for their emotions then the act of suppressing that you is where you, you exactly what you said is like you you have to moderate that by using substances and it sounds like yeah. you know that that and and as you and I have talked about before like it's not just trauma it's not just emotions it's a multifaceted context that brings you into developing a substance use disorder um but you know that that's sort of what drives people to use and then so whether or not you are regulating that but as you mentioned even regulated you know non you know particularly chaotic use can still be harmful um including the way we like normally accept alcohol consumption um in this country especially like it is often in the frame of binging uh, and that in and of itself can be harmful. Um, that may not qualify as having a substance use disorder, but it's still a form of problematic use. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's something that's 
worth us exploring more and, and, and us as a society understanding too, as we grapple with, you know, the, the epidemics of, of substance use and, and overdose deaths, um, how we're going to navigate our way forward. Um, I'm curious yeah. in, in the context of that um, description about, you know, you got hit by a bike, you're prescribed these opioids, you're told that they're okay, um, and benzos. And then say a little bit more about what happened and where you discovered that was harmful to you. Well, I will say this just to kind of touch on on your kind of inquiry or just your statement. I actually I was scared of Tylenol. I was scared of uh, I was scared. So I actually did view all pharmaceuticals as bad, basically. Um, and I was scared of them. They seemed alien to me or <laughs> like, you know, like they, they just seemed non-human uh, and just dangerous. So it was interesting how it was like I was kind of won over by the feeling, I guess, so to speak. But I did not yeah. immediately um, take more than I was prescribed. Uh, that was not how it played out. It was that the first thing was that I implemented, actually took the first few prescriptions completely as prescribed. And I just I added cannabis to the mix. And that's what created a little bit of a different or deeper experience. And I remember vividly, um, you know, laying on this little this bed, this little twin bed and like feeling like I was sinking into it. And I liked that I was like, I kind of felt that, you know, oblivion that a lot of people talk about just with that combo of, you know, opiates and, and benzos. So it was, uh, it just gave me a taste of it. And then, well, as you know, uh, you know, this was, you know, around the time to where, I mean, they had reformulated, you know, Oxycontin to, to be the, the OPs and to, you know, gel up if you try to crush them up or chew them up. So it was like, you know, this is like when all this was kind of happening. And uh, so prescribing, you know, opiates and opioids was not really, um, it was really being pulled back drastically. So I uh, was able to get them, but it wasn't easy at all. So then what it did is it just, it, it gave me this feeling of lacking. Like I was, I was lacking what I needed because I was experiencing legitimate chronic pain and I, I still do, you know, but it's, it's, it's manageable. And, and I, I do so without medication, but the, the energy was just of lacking and needing something that I couldn't get. And so that's kind of what I was meeting reality with. And I felt very, I felt like I was dealt just a really bad hand because of just the, the kind of context of how the, you know, the accident happened and that it was like someone who made like a left unprotected turn in front of me, basically, you know, so it was like a scenario to where I'm going, you know, south, and they're going north, and they're trying to turn. And so as soon as I go to an intersection, they turn, and I actually T-boned them, <laughs> because there was no time to swerve or anything. And the reason I bring that up is because I was obsessed with that event, that moment. And it, uh, it fostered uh, energy of pessimism and, cynic like, uh, and, and, and cynicism. I was cynical and pessimistic. And I just felt like, 
I was set up for failure. And so that's, it's really relevant here because that was paired with the oblivion, the numbness, the sedation of that combo of opioids and benzos. And that's what was so intriguing. And so logically I was like, okay, I don't want to do this, but considering everything, this seems like the most logical option. It makes the most sense to me to do this. And, uh, you know, I would reference specific traumatic events regularly, you know, I'll do a quick trauma dump and say my dad, you know, had a stroke and ended up coming home from the grocery store from having the stroke and that my life changed on a domestic level in the span of a few hours because uh, he, you know, was like non-functional and and my parents ended up divorcing literally at the same time because there was like this like infidelity stuff that was revealed during that time. So it was like, I just had events that were life-changing and then I had the near-death experience. So yeah, basically the opioids and the benzos were just a really effective means of kind of forgetting. That's, that's, that's really what I like to mention is that like, that's what, what developed it is I was like, okay, I can actually forget my traumas temporarily and kind of reduce those like somatic responses. And that's how I'm going to be able to navigate life. And then there, there can be a point for many people to where that's where it can also start hindering certain things and uh, contributing to, for me, like isolation and like inability to really like care for myself, you know, but yeah, it, it definitely was just a continual compromise. And I like to mention that for me, there was never ever a, a point to where I was fully like feeling really good about the decision. I felt bad about it the whole time. And that speaks to the compulsive aspect because I felt obligated, like I had to do it. So that, again, contributed to the cynicism and and the pessimism. I was like, cool, I'm like, screwed. And then I'll say this and then give you the floor. I I basically interpreted it as the universe or people want to say God was punishing me. And it made me pissed at the universe because I was like, why are you doing this to me? Basically, you know, that's, that's yeah, honestly that doesn't feel what fair, contributed right? to it. Yeah, 100%. And I think when you get to that place, I mean, right, you're, you are just looking for an escape. And I think something you said um, was interesting to me is that you felt this compulsion to use and then used sort of impulsively despite understanding that you felt like you were actively harming yourself or being harmed by using substances and you you viewed them negatively but you can even you know that speaks to a few things one we know the impact that these can have and that that's like when people talk about it's an addictive substance we like it's because of that right it's because (laughs) of the impact that we know it has um and some people like that a lot of people like that frankly just not everybody develops this sort of compulsion um to continue using and even when they view it harmfully right not everybody views it as harmful to begin with but even you in your example you viewed it as harmful and yet you were still using because you felt like this compulsion to use because that was your means of managing your reality and this this like the depth of this 
feeling that you were unfairly harmed by by the universe. Um, and I think, yep. right, like, I think a lot of people feel things like that about substances. They think like, oh, well, this is a way, like when people say like, oh, well, you know, definitely going to have a drink after this. Like that is an expression of alcohol provides me some sense of relief of stress or anxiety. Like it is a emotional management tool, right? And that, that in and of itself can be problematic. Even if you have regulated use, it's about, it's a, it's an emotional management tool, opioids, benzos, all of those things. We know how they work. We know that they like turn the volume down, for example, to, to use that analogy. Um, I love that sort of expression because it's, it's taking it from 11 to, to, to crank it back down. Um, and so I, while you're in this sort of chaotic use, you're, you're using initially medications that were prescribed and then were sort of, you were deprescribed, um, benzos and, and opioids, you were, it sounds like finding ways to obtain them that may or may not have been from prescriptions. And that yeah. eventually, and, and then describe that to me, because I know, yeah. I know, I know this story has a, a good ending, fortunately, and you're here. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to, to explore the path that that took, which, you know, not to say that there's a standard path, but like, you walked a very certain path that had a sort of a very like, winding direction. Yeah, no, it's so basically, I was able to periodically get benzodiazepine scripts and opiate or opioid scripts depending on the provider i i went in and out of the er repeatedly that was like one of the main kind of uh points of entry when it came to get, gaining access to a uh, safe supply it was going to the er um and so i was uh frequent flyer and it's it's funny because you know you obviously a have a lot of experience of the emergency department uh, yeah i went in all the time and they did not like me they were very annoyed with me and uh they would often reluctantly cut me loose with probably maybe like 10 15 20 30 norcos and then it ended up being you know okay, now we'll give you, they'll give me the 10 milligram ones. And then after they got more annoyed and more annoyed months and months, they were like, now we're giving you the five milligram ones. And like, so they, it was, there's a direct correlation between me perceiving them as being annoyed by me and them giving me like less and a lower dose. Um, so, and then they would, they would ultimately often end up giving me a shot of Ativan and, uh, I went to pain management doctors. They would never give me i'd never successfully got any medications from a pain management doctor ever um and so i literally got all of my prescriptions from the emergency room that was i would go and just intentionally i'm going to the emergency room and i'm going to do whatever i can so that they'll give me a prescription and again i had had used stronger medications the initial you know medication they used on used on me was dilaudid so I was like, okay, yeah, you're you're being stingy now and just really bringing me down to hydrocodone. And uh, so then I started experimenting with like cold water extraction, and uh, because for those that are unfamiliar, like you you can die if you're taking that much acetaminophen or Tylenol. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah. uh, so that's what's really problematic with that. And so then I discovered, which is a great harm reduction tip out there for anyone who is utilizing any sort of medication, um, in it, you know, pain medication that has Tylenol in it, is uh, that you know, you can avoid a lot of harm if you do cold water extraction. And this is obviously not any sort of medical advice or suggestion to use substances, but people are going to, to use these, these medications that have Tylenol in them in a way that w can and will give them, as you know, severe liver damage and even result in a Tylenol overdose. So I discovered that I could do that. I could do cold water extraction and I could I'm not sure as far as efficacy, um, you know, I do know that it definitely worked um, and that I was able to extract uh, what I'm assuming is the large majority of that Tylenol. And so then, but then the issue was, is that I would run out quicker because my whole supply would be in a cup of water. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's like, now I have a cup of hydrocodone and, uh, I'm thirsty, so I'm going to drink the whole thing probably. So then you're taking, uh, you know, a, a script of 30 10 milligram Norcos in one sitting as, as opposed to, you know, maybe taking 5, 10, 15, um, maybe one night and then finishing off the rest of the next night. So, it, uh, yeah, it basically just that was the only downside to that. But I could feel physically I felt a little bit better when I wasn't consuming that much Tylenol. But so, yeah, I basically, um, you know, I would go to providers and try to acquire substances. I would find psychiatrists that would give me prescriptions. I had a very hard time getting Xanax. I was often able to get Klonopin. Um, So that was like one of my other favorite benzos was Klonopin. And I liked it also, you know, found out later that it was probably probably because of its half-life and I felt like I yeah. had, it had a little bit more, it had like more legs so it would last longer, um, you know, but of course it was like a slower onset. So yeah, I just, I basically would do that. Um, I would buy, you know, mostly Oxycontin and uh, morphine and then like codeine and promethazine cough syrup because I'm from Texas and that's like a huge part of our kind of substance use culture just here in Texas. So it was like, yeah, it was just like, uh, periodic emergency room visits probably there were times where it was like monthly and then there were times to where I could get oxys and it would just kind of delay that but it was always like my last ditch effort was to go to the emergency room and the thing is is that I would have rebound pain because I would be out of of pain medication so I was actually experiencing legitimate cr chronic pain but I also had a compulsion to seek a euphoria so it was like such a conflicting place to be because I was I was so confused but I, I became occupied with chronic pain and obsessed with pain in general and avoidance of any pain, not just physical, but emotional. So that yeah. then added in this whole other aspect to where, oh, yeah, I already was trying to avoid reality when it came to challenging emotions and experiences. But now now I'm experiencing very consistent chronic pain, you know, basically in my shoulder because I had fractured my shoulder blade. And then from an L5 fracture, I got something called spondylolisthesis. So it really manifested on, on the right side of my back up my spine to where I get like chronic inflammation that would just really cause a lot of, of pain. So it was like, okay, now I'm even more screwed, you know, because the pain actually felt like it was getting worse because 
a lot of it was psychosomatic, I believe, and rebound pain to where I, again, was so occupied. I've often said that anyone, if you met me for the first time, I'm going to tell you that I have chronic pain within five minutes and, and tell you why and kind of do like share my story of how I'm fucked and that, you know, I'm screwed for life basically. So, um, just, yeah, it, it, that kind of can help people to understand the level of pessimism that I was kind of meeting reality with. But guess what? I also still was someone who would engage and I would go out to music venues and I was, you know, I was producing instrumentals during this time. I had a whole internship with a, a commercial studio and my thing was that I wanted to to do music production and my, my uncle, who's an, an awesome musician and like a local le- legend as well as my dad, I was able to get a little bit of nepotism and, and I was able to get into a really cool studio and uh, but but my benzo use made it impossible for me to retain information so within a small amount of time you know my mentor in that setting was like hey are you are you good like it seems like like I, we're, we're you're asking me the same questions or we're, you know what I mean and it, and it was so sweet he was so compassionate and so sweet um, but I was like upfront. I was like, "Hey, yeah, I I, I take clonopin." So, uh, just to put a bow on it, I'll just say, it was with the with the opioids. It was way the opiates and opioids because they would fluctuate depending on what they would give me. But most of the time, it was like like I said, like a Norco. That was not consistent, and the the benzodiazepines were a little bit more consistent. And then there would be periodic levels of just over. I'm sorry, but downright over medication where they would just throw a bunch of, you know, different meds at me and at at a level that it was like physically harmful for me. Like, you know, beta blockers at a dose that would make it to where I couldn't walk up a set of stairs. Um, Like, you know, just basically I'll I'll say this and I actually will put a bow on it. The, what I realized is that no one was going to save me. I was like, uh-huh. uh, uh, there's no one that can save me from this. And there's no one, I felt like there was no one that could even help me. And uh, I, I say, I can say now that I have the utmost respect for providers that gave me prescriptions. Yeah. And often people demonize that. And, and because it's part of their process, I have utmost respect for the providers that gave me prescriptions because it reduced a massive amount of harm in my life. A hundred percent. I mean, you said a a few really critical things there. One is you mentioned safe supply, right? Like you were getting a safe supply that way. I would say, and this is my recommendation to any, you know, physicians, advanced practice providers who are listening, like do, if you can, do not prescribe things that have acetaminophen in them. Like just don't because if people use more or they happen to have, say, opioid use disorder, that can be harmful. I have um, unfortunately had the experience of having to see somebody uh, die from that um, in the hospital who came in in liver failure from Percocets, um, was taking a, a ton of Percocet, which has a ton of acetaminophen in it, right? Um, and that she ended up dying. She was very young. Um, and that from that moment on, I don't prescribe anything that is an opioid with acetaminophen. I will only prescribe um, sort of either, and I like to use um, immediate release morphine, um, oxycodone if I need to. Um, But those, right, simple, pure opiates or opioids that uh, that don't aren't um, co drugs. They don't they don't have acetaminophen, and I think that's 
really important. And like people who are using need to be aware of that. And so that's part of safe supply is making sure that it is just one thing and that you can't like end up having liver failure and dying. Um, I think the other thing that you talked about a little bit that I, that I sort of focused on was the fact that you kept going back and using and you felt like you felt like you were being judged for that. Um, and you had asked me before if I had had negative experiences around, say, drug-seeking um, behavior. And I, I don't like to use the term drug-seeking behavior as a general term, but like what you're describing is literally you were going there seeking to get a, a, a prescription for, for <laughs> a drug. And yeah. to be clear, I consider all pharmaceutical drugs to be drugs like if it is a chemical that you use for its pharmacologic intent or or effect that's a drug that we use like all medications are drugs not all not all are not all drugs not all chemical structures are medications but all medications are drugs right and so drug seeking as a term frankly everybody coming into the emergency department if they are seeking the uh, treatment through pharmacologic means that is drug seeking. But what you're describing in this case is you were specifically like seeking an opioid or benzo prescription. Um, and, and yeah, I do see that. And I have seen that. And I have prescribed medications at times to people who I suspected maybe didn't have, a, you know, a legitimate, as some people want to say, like, oh, they don't have a legitimate cause of their pain. I'm like, I don't know. Like, who am I to judge what is legitimate? Like, I can't see everything on on imaging or in lab tests or whatever. Like, they may have psychosomatic pain. But also the the incessant focus on and living simply as when your identity is consumed by living in chronic pain. And then what you're describing, you had rebound pain, you probably had rebound anxiety. This is one of the things about the chronic use of, say, benzodiazepines, um, which is why they aren't considered like a first-line treatment modality for anxiety is because you can get rebound anxiety and then they're like, oh man, my anxiety just keeps getting worse. Like, yeah, that's the problem. I have so many patients who I have, you know, obviously in collaboration with them with their consent we have tapered them down and eventually off of benzos and uh so many of them are like oh man my anxiety is so much better now <laughs> and it's like yeah because what you are talking about is you were experiencing essentially like inter what we call interdose withdrawals you were in a withdrawal state that is leading to your anxiety the same, by the way, is true of nicotine. I don't think people recognize this, but nicotine is a stimulant. And so, like, your nicotinic receptors in your body um, are activating. And so when people say, oh, I need to smoke to, like, calm down, the calming effect is because you are going through withdrawal um, and you are stimulated. And so you, you are, like, it is helping you to manage your interdose withdrawals. Same thing is true with opioids. Same thing is true with benzos. Any substance that you can develop a uh, dependence and tolerance to, you will develop uh, or a, a withdrawal state and a tolerance to, you will end up developing interdose withdrawals if you are not using them at a frequency in which that uh, effect, that like you talked about the half-life, 
of clonazepam or clonopin um, is longer than Xanax. The reason Xanax can be really harmful and probably why you had a harder time getting a prescription for it is because the half-life is like four hours. It's like super short. And yeah. so if you become dependent on, on Xanax, you got to be taking a ton of them throughout the day because you're getting interdose withdrawals and your anxiety is going to get really bad. Um, and so that's why that can be particularly harmful. It's fine if you're like using it once while you're having, say, a panic attack like one time. But if you are chronically using them or chronically on them as a medication, you can develop that interdose withdrawal. Um, and that is anxiety. And for pain, when it's opioids, you can develop interdose withdrawals, which part of your pain syndrome or part of your withdrawal syndrome is pain. And so you have worsening pain of your already on top of your chronic pain, right? Um, and so I think it's so important what you're saying is like, when you get sunk so deep in that sort of emotional hole of cynicism, pessimism, like where you felt like there is no hope, I'm never getting out of this, and also the universe is against me. Um, and then you're using those to sort of like mask that pessimism and cynicism and sort of self-shame too that, that you were describing as well. Um, you know, you get stuck in this really vicious cycle and that can be incredibly hard to pull out of. And that is part of this idea of like developing substance use disorders and the, and the, the shame and the, the hiding and all the negative things that people associate with having a substance use disorder. Because not, right, n there's nothing inherently true about the existence of a substance use disorder uh, or a person having a substance use disorder and that they are going to necessarily do negative things or cause particular harm. But people make those associations because of the things that happen sort of as a result of what gets you there, of like being in this, in this like deep hole, right? Um, yep. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on like, we sort of taken a journey with you here to this deep hole and it feels really dark. Um, what, is that, what does that look like to try to climb out of? There is, there was no trying to explain that of it. There was just a, a reservation and, and uh, an acceptance that I was going to die, basically, and that that was just what my life was. And, you know, my, my mom got into recovery a few years before me. And if anything, it just made me resentful because I thought that she was positioning herself as self-righteous or something of that nature. I was just like, yeah, this is bullshit. You're, you traumatized me and now you're, you know, in AA and I just, and her behavior changed. Um, you know, behavior changed. There was, she had real results from that, but I just invalidated it. And I was like, mm, no, like I, I was just deeply, I was a hater is a good kind of like less eloquent way to describe it. I was like, when I saw people who were doing good or were successful or of status or whatever, I was just salty. I was like, oh, like, really? You have the, you have the audacity to do well. Like, so that's, that's it. it I was reserved. I, I basically just accepted that I was going to die and that I should just try to be as numb as possible until that happened. And it was also met with a small part of me that didn't want to die. 
and that wanted to be someone who could have the basic things in life that I felt I was excluded from. And, you know, I was, when I was 18 is when it got really deep because I was living on my own. I was extremely privileged in that my dad got me an apartment and I didn't want it. I was extremely just not doing good mentally and I was still not so deep into it that I wanted to be around people consistently. Like I wanted, I felt just extremely lost and scared and I did not want to live on my own. And so a moment that most people would be really excited for, I was not and I didn't want to get my own apartment. And uh, it also made me feel like shit because I knew how weirdly messed up that was that I couldn't have genuine gratitude for my dad, again, getting me an apartment and, and, and offering to, you know, to pay for it, at least temporarily, which is a huge privilege. So it was like, that was another part that was really conflicting is that I did not grow up in a, you know, in a position of extreme financial privilege or really any financial privilege. But then my, my dad and my mom both did work really hard and set me up with certain things. Um, but I always just felt like it was, uh, I was around a lot of, uh, very, uh, I just was around a lot of people of significant wealth within like kind of my early years. Cause I went to a Montessori school. Um, and <laughs> so I like was comparing my life to people who lived in multi-million dollar houses. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that just kind of can, again, kind of give you a little bit more insight when it came to why I was like, I'm doomed. Cause I was like, I see other people's lives. I I'm comparing everything. I'm like overly analytical and just like looking at stuff. I'm also mindful of the fact that my, my use was at such a level that I could not hold a job. So it was like, I, I literally would like, I started working when I was a little, I was very young. I started working before I was using and doing construction with my grandpa. And so, you know, and that was at, at a very young age before I was, you know, even not, not even close to 18. I believe I was like 14 when I first started doing that. And so I, uh, yeah, I, I just, I was also hating on myself because of that, because I had a really strong work ethic that was instilled by my grandpa and my mom and even my dad, because he's just like, he's hustled with his music so much. And I was just like, I, it just made me really feel irredeemable, because I was like, I feel entitled, yet I also don't at the same time, because I feel low self-worth, I feel, you know, incompetent, but I also know that, you know, I can be creative and stuff, but I just don't really see any of that coming into fruition. Uh, you know, it was to the point to where people were just really obviously seeing that I was struggling as well. Yeah. And, uh, I really only had my partner, my sister and my mom in my life. So, you know, just to tell you like where it got really dark, it was got dark in the apartment at 18. And then by about, I believe 19 or 20, I moved back in with my mom. And, uh, at the time she had a boyfriend who had money, who, who had, um, oil money, 
you know, so that's okay. someone yeah. with a lot of money. And so it was like, now she can fully, and she always was supporting of me, like when I was in the apartment, but it's, it was like bringing me food whenever she could and all this other stuff. Um, and that's really the only reason I ate was, you know, cause my mom was, was coming through and doing that. But, uh, but yeah, it just, now I'm living with my mom and I'm like even more down on myself because I'm, you know, at the age that you're supposed to be doing the opposite. So instead of, you know, going out on my own, I went back, um, you know, and, and at 19 or 20 or wherever that was, um, you know, and, and also, you know, had a, a partner throughout that whole time as well. So then I'm like, look, like looking at myself, like, why the, why would anyone want to be around me? You know, I really didn't understand that. And, um, I was so desperate for any sort of, uh, just connection with people that it was good to actually have a genuine connection with someone. And I, again, was really kind of privileged to have that, uh, during that time throughout like the worst of it, like when it got really, really bad. Um, but yeah, so, so basically I just was resigned to the idea that I was going to die and everyone around me could see that for the most part. And it was scary as shit to them because that's, that's when my yeah. use got to a level that I was actively like, you know, having severe respiratory depression and like, you know, gasping for air at night and like, like I would stop breathing for a little bit and then like come to and gasp for air. So it was like, everyone felt like they had to kind of like supervise me and babysit me to make sure that I didn't die too. So now it was like, <laughs> that was part of it is like, now everyone has to kind of prevent me from dying because I didn't care if I died or not. Um, but I also at the same time was scared. So I wouldn't, I didn't have it. I didn't feel like I had the capacity to like take my own life. Cause I was like, I just don't, don't feel like I can do that, but I could passively, it's pretty directly and, and passively maybe is not the best word, but it felt like it was more of a passive approach to dying. If I could just take opioids, benzos, and then Ambien was the addition during that time that I think really is what made it really, really dangerous when it came to that combo is that now I'm like on, on a Z, a, a Z medication and I'm taking benzos, which, you know, are like very kind of like adjacent. And then, yeah. um, you know, taking the, the, the pain meds on top of it. So it was like, um, you know, and I was doing that to where every day I would be nodding out by like 9am, 10am. And so then it was just like a, 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 a nod for the rest of the day. Um, and then of course passing out as opposed to sleeping. So yeah, it, it I did not see a way out and I thought that I was going to die. Basically <laughs> there were no efforts to, um, commit to any sort of recovery or anything like that. I did the one thing I did, which actually is very significant is I, uh, when I was put onto a, a new, uh, a, a maintenance medication, I was, I, so I basically sought that out. Basically that's a whole nother aspect of the story, but I discontinued clonopin cold turkey which i didn't know you couldn't oh. do um but that honestly now when i look back on that it just showed my capacity to actually make a, a critical decision for myself albeit uh ill-informed and dangerous <laughs> i was able to just stop taking benzos so that's I, I now look back on that and i give my my younger self a little bit of credit again yeah, even though that should. is not what you should ever do and no. that was it was dangerous it still showed that i was capable of making a decision and stopping something just from making a decision because i was and, just you know and that you had the insight that like that was harming you and in fact yeah. you had all but given up and 
you were you knew that you were basically trying to passively kill yourself and that that had the potential to do you in and yeah yeah medically don't ever do that um like just going cold turkey on benzos you can end up having seizures uh you can you can, that is there are only a few things that you can truly just die from the withdrawal um benzos and alcohol yeah. are are pretty much the, the two um just from the withdrawal state alone and that going cold turkey off of benzos can be potentially super harmful obviously you survived which is a good thing um but what did what did right so you're well first of all how what it, tell me about this maintenance medication part, which I, you know, I know that yeah. may seem like a tangent to you, but I think that's actually criti- critically important because you were making a very important decision at that time. You weren't ready to stop yet, but you made the decision, okay, I'm going to at least stop proactively trying to gradually kill myself. Yeah, so... And that's a really good point. And the thing is, is that I've removed myself from this type of format of like life story telling. Like I don't, I think I've shared it with you before. I don't like to do it anymore yeah, because it, it's something that I'm happy doing it with you because I like you and I, I, I want to like give this to our audience. Um, but it's something that you're spot on. Like I, I've changed the context or my thinking around what that was because when I was still demonizing substance use, it was, nope, dude, you're just trying to get access to something that's still ultimately harmful. I actually now consider that to be the beginning of my recovery. Um, a hundred percent. And the thing is, is that I just, I didn't see that. And I'm not even joking. I didn't see it as such until probably, a few months ago and that's still after deprogramming and you know being deeply ingrained in harm reduction so it just shows how deep the indoctrination can be that someone who is still you know devoting their life to thinking differently about these things just had that occur recently to where i was like oh technically i have like a whole other year of recovery if i want to be technical about it and yeah. and i do actually consider that now so i, I magically got a whole another year <laughs> of re- so now now i have a lot of power in, in recovery i'm just joking but it's true the the weird power dynamics but um but yeah so basically i i took a methadone pill from my plug who was like a very older metalhead guy, which is just a funny little side note. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he was super cool and, and very, very reliable and never tried to manipulate um, me or anyone I ever saw him serving substances to, which I just, again, have respect for the way that he conducted himself personally, because not all of plugs are created equal when it comes to uh, the way that they operate. Um, so, yeah, he was like, you know, very compassionate and understanding and was basically went out of his way to come and give me uh, methadone pills. And uh, during this time, I was spending a lot of time middle manning for people's parents and things like there were a couple parents that I was engaging with. So just to let you know, like the dynamic of like what where that was at, which was just a weird kind of place to be in. Um, so that was my my introduction to methadone specifically, which I thought like probably wouldn't do anything. And because I had a period of like unintentional abstinence because I couldn't get anything, it was very effective. And I was like, 
oh, okay, this is way better than hydrocodone. This is way better than the things that I can kind of go seek out in the, you know, emergency medicine setting. So I was like, oh, cool. And this is part of why I invalidated just my experience with, with methadone is because I felt good off of it. And so I was like, oh, that was all invalid and meant nothing. When in reality, guess what it did? It immediately, I stopped, first of all, trying to acquire illicit opiates and opioids. It like simultaneously tell me ceased. it worked? Like, yeah, <laughs> it ceased. Like I was like, oh, there we go. And I just didn't understand. I didn't know the purpose of it. So I... It was conflicting and confusing to me, um, you know, and, and so, yeah, basically it was, that was on my own. I found a, a, a clinic that actually was no more than three blocks away from me. So it was very, yeah. there's not, I think there's not very many here at the time. I think there was two uh, and I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm in Austin, Texas. So um, it just kind of seemed like it was meant to be because I could walk there, uh, you know, so yeah, I, I went there and they gave me the whole, you know, introduction and basically said, like, you you need to not be on benzos. And uh, so that is where the initiative to stop taking the benzos came. And I, again, stopped taking them cold turkey, which can kill you and cause psychosis and <laughs> all that stuff. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it that was actually it was a huge thing for me now. The the thing is, is that the way that I increased my dose, instead of getting over that hump of, of, of maybe being a little bit sedated while you're getting used to the dose, while you're being induced, I continued to go higher and would continue to nod out. And uh, the thing is, is when I did the, the cold turkey clonopin thing, I went to, guess where? The emergency room, because I had a seizure. and the they were like, what if, what's going on? Did you discontinue any medications? Did, I was like, yeah, I stopped taking clonopin. I was taking like 14 milligrams of clonopin, and I just stopped. And so they're like, yeah, uh, we're going to encourage you to keep taking your medications. You so know? And, and yeah, they gave me a shot of Ativan, and I was, I was fine, actually. As soon as they gave me that Ativan, I was fine. So I took that as like the ultimate cosign from the universe of like, you got it, bro keep taking these, these benzos, dude, you're good. And so then, um, I communicated all that with the clinic and they basically were like, okay, well, if you can put us in communication with your prescribing doctor, then we're good. You can just take benzos. And I was like, all right, cool. So I, I turned that told the doctor and, uh, he was like, all right. And very, very, very good provider, very understanding. Um, again, in early recovery, I was like, he's terrible. I can't believe that he gave me clonopin. It's like, no, dude, he was a compassionate doctor that listened and saw the presentation of symptoms and treated them accordingly as someone who had tried all of these other medications legitimately, you know, actually given them a chance, um, you know, and was ultimately like treatment resistant when it came to like anxiety treatment. So that, again, like you said, is like a kind of like a last line of defense, um, you know, but with that being said, that's how I look at it now. I was like, this this provider was providing, basically. So, yeah, th that communication was there, and now I'm good to go, and I can, you know, take the, the, the clonopin. So I went back and started kind of ramping up, and then again, I would get, um, I would fluctuate from like 8 to sometimes like 14 on like days that I would find the bottle because my mom would like 
have it hidden somewhere. So, uh, so it was like kind of fluctuating. So then some, some days should be better at hiding it than others. And so I wouldn't find it. Um, you know, but, but yeah, so what I saw is a reduction in the, the constant search for the, for the opiates and or opioids. And then I guess the, the aspect of it that was not sustainable was the constant dose increase and um, just the culture within the clinic itself. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not represent that of our employers. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please follow up with your doctor regarding your care. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. Thank you for listening.